you're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. So we've got a really brief historical context for Nehemiah, um, which is that, that Israel's transitioning out of this extended period of of exile, which I would argue at the beginning of Nehemiah has been about 77 years since the temple was destroyed, and now it's been rebuilt for about seven years, and a remnant of Jews, likely about 10% of the Jewish people, have returned to Jerusalem and the surrounding areas, and they've begun this process of reestablishing all of the norms of Jewish culture, all of the ways that God had called and created them to live among the nations. They have the temple where they're now worshiping and offering sacrifices and praying. And now in Nehemiah chapter 1, a report comes to Nehemiah who's in Susa, the capital of Persia, that his home city, Jerusalem, is not in good shape. And Nehemiah aims to do something about it. And this history is important, but it's really only important as it relates to the theological implications of the history. And so, so the prophetic writings for the, the people of Israel in the Old Testament before the Babylonian exile that the Jews are now coming out of in Nehemiah, they talked about this idea of a new Jerusalem, a more glorious city than even the original Jerusalem that was built in the days of of the judges and and the kings. And this city, the new Jerusalem, according to the prophets, would be a beacon of holiness and righteousness and God's glory and, and prosperity and all the Gentile nations would see the glories of Jerusalem and they would begin to flock to Jerusalem and all the nations would be gathered in Jerusalem and they would be converted to the worship of Yahweh. They would forsake their idols and their pagan practices and all of the nations would be united under the worship of the God of the Bible. And, and it would establish this everlasting kingdom of God. And there would be a king, unlike any king who's ever reigned, and, and he would establish this perfect and everlasting kingdom which would surpass all the other kingdoms of the earth in glory and eventually replace all the other kingdoms of the earth until the whole earth is covered in the glory and worship of God. So the new Jerusalem, theologically speaking, is a vision of God's salvation for the universe. A vision of a better and heavenly society. A vision of all of the promises of God coming to fruition. And so as exile was ending, and in the days of Ezra, the temple was being rebuilt, the leaders, there were leaders rising up like Ezra and Zerubbabel and Nehemiah and, and back in Persia, Esther. And so the expectation for the reader and almost certainly for all of the Jews of that age, was that maybe these promises are beginning to come to pass. We are rebuilding our city. We are rebuilding the temple. Maybe this is when all of these promises happen. Maybe the new king is coming. Maybe everything that God promised is coming to pass. But the problem is, is that there were a lot of disappointments in the midst of these hints at these promises. 
The, the new temple that they built in, in Jerusalem, it paled in comparison to the temple of Solomon's day. It was smaller, it was less glorious, and, and when they dedicated it, the glory cloud that, that fell from heaven on, on, on the original tabernacle in the days of Moses and then on the temple in the days of Solomon, the glory cloud didn't show up. The Ark of the Covenant, which was the footstool of God's throne room in the most holy place, it was still somewhere lost in the, the Babylonian exile. And so there was, there was all of this disappointment. And then culturally speaking, religiously speaking, there were these other disappointments because the expectation of the New Jerusalem was that Israel would be a holy people to the Lord. But as the leaders of, of Israel looked around, what they saw were a, a people who were sexually impure whose hearts weren't devoted to the Lord, who, who had forgotten the promises of God, who weren't committed to the things of God's law. And so while the promises of the future kingdom painted pictures of glory, the reality of the situation seemed disappointing. The new Jerusalem was going to be this place where all of Israel, which had experienced division and disruption throughout its history, would be united, and then it would be united to the nations of the world. But, but even the Jews were bickering and fighting with one another in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. And, and this is important for us as we read Nehemiah because, because the ways that Nehemiah is helpful to us are, are based about, upon all of these upon all of these promises. See, in the New Testament, in the days of Jesus and following Jesus, we see similar things begin to happen. So Jesus, in the book of John, tells us that his death and resurrection will be the destruction and the rebuilding of the temple, right? And so he says that my body is the temple of the Lord and that when I'm Killed, it will be the destruction of the temple, but in three days I will raise it up and it will be more glorious than the last. And so Jesus is saying that even the second temple of Ezra and Nehemiah's day, it would no longer be the center of worship for the people of God, but that he would be. That he would be the place where sacrifice takes place, where worship takes place, where the Spirit of God fully dwells to bless his people. And in his resurrection, the, the temple and the imaginings of all of the prophets that wrote before the exile would truly come to pass. And, and so when the nations flocked to this new temple to worship Yahweh, it would really be the nations flocking to worship Jesus. That they would be trusting in him. And then the apostles who author most of the New Covenant, uh, the New Testament, they established that, that Christ also describes his people the church, as the temple of the Lord. And so now the temple is not this glorious building where God dwells and where his people come to worship, but, but the temple of God is wherever his spirit is, which is wherever there is hope and worship of Jesus Christ, that is where the spirit of God is, and therefore the church is the new temple of God. And so if there is worship to happen for the God of the Bible, it is to happen among the church. The Spirit of God dwells among them. Worship takes place within the church. And within the ministry of the church, all of the ministry of the temple is replaced and surpassed. Sins are forgiven. Prayers are offered. And union with God is found. 
And then what we see at the very end of the Bible is once again promises of a new Jerusalem. See, the fundamental vision and mission and end goal of the church in the New Testament is about the church being the new Jerusalem that the prophets talked about. In Revelation 21, John explicitly tells us that the church is the new Jerusalem that blesses the nations by opening her gates to all the peoples of the world to come and to worship God, to worship Jesus. And so in the Old Testament, this vision was of the nations flocking to Jerusalem to worship. But in the New Testament, the directional emphasis of these promises changes. No more is the is the idea that all the nations of the world will flock directionally to a central place, but rather the followers of Jesus in the New Testament are sent out, right? In Acts, we see that that Jesus tells his people to go from Jerusalem to Judea to to Samaria to all the ends of the earth. And so now the new Jerusalem is a city in perpetual exile among the nations, but being built up among the nations so that wherever she is, the nations might flock to her as a beacon of light and hope and righteousness. The church will purposefully exile itself, but wherever she is, the nations will be drawn to her. So the new Jerusalem is now a multiplying And eventually, the New Jerusalem is an omnipresent city offering forgiveness and worship and righteousness and the presence of God to all who would come and participate. And so the theological implications of the New Jerusalem being among the nations means that wherever the church is, whether in Montrose or in Manila, those places should benefit from the presence of the church being there. So when we read Nehemiah, the concern will be over the city of Jerusalem. But in order for us to read it in a way that actually trains us and informs us as to the way that we ought to live today, we have to have these things in mind. Because we have to see that the Jerusalem in Nehemiah is simultaneously a symbol for us of the church and of the societies we inhabit. Because for Nehemiah, Jerusalem was both the epicenter of the worship of Yahweh, and it was his homeland. And that's important. And so the prophet Jeremiah taught us long before the days of Nehemiah that, that wherever God's people are, they should seek the welfare of their city and that it would be their welfare. And so now if God's city is the church, wherever that city is, it should also seek the welfare of the earthly city that it inhabits. And so with all of that being said contextually, let's read the first three verses of Nehemiah chapter 1. It says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of of Shizlev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. 
So here in the first three verses, we're introduced to the key issue of the book. Nehemiah, who is a faithful Jew in Persia, is told that his people are in trouble. They are in shame. And that his city is in disrepair. Its walls are broken down. Parts of it have been burned with fire. And so even though the temple has been rebuilt and and the city is still in shambles, the people of God are not flourishing in their homeland. And Nehemiah, as we will soon find out, he feels a deep duty to take action as it relates to this. The walls of Jerusalem are important for us symbolically. Because while the Old Testament prophets spoke of the new Jerusalem being a city without walls, which was this symbolic way of saying that Jerusalem will be a place that is open and welcoming to all people, that, that no more is it, is it specifically to the Jewish people, the, the Hebrew ethnic group, but now that the promises of God will be available to all people, but the walls of Jerusalem are still symbolically important because it shows us that God's people are supposed to be distinct. Right? And so even though we, as the New Jerusalem in Montrose, are a city without walls, welcoming all of our neighbors, regardless of their background or their history, to participate in the promises of God, we are called to be a distinct and holy people in this city. The walls being broken down are symbolic of a lack of holiness. We, like Nehemiah, inhabit a reality in which the temple has been rebuilt, right? It's been rebuilt through the resurrected and glorified Christ. He has established a new temple for us in the work that he's done. All the worship and sacrifice and and praise that is to be offered to God has taken place through the perfect work of Jesus that we now get to participate in. The temple has been rebuilt. Through Jesus Christ, the presence of God has come down to his people. The forgiveness of sins has been granted to any who would come to him. Prayers are heard and answered. Righteousness is presently available to all who come to Jesus. But the new Jerusalem, the fullness of the city of God, is incomplete, just like it was in the days of Nehemiah. The new Jerusalem is the complete union of heaven and earth. The fullness of a new creation with, where, where all the nations are at peace and dwelling in the light of God. And we can obviously say that this has not yet been fulfilled. The walls of the church, which mark God's people as distinct and holy, are at times and in places broken down, burned by fire. Our societies are in trouble and in shame like the society of Nehemiah. We, we can see this not only by watching the news and, and just seeing it as, as kind of this obvious reality when we look at the world around us that there's trouble and shame, but, but if we judge societies using the rubric of God in his word to judge societies, what we will see is that in the Bible, societies that are broken and worthy of God's judgment are those that worship idols, those that promote or tolerate mass injustice toward the vulnerable, societies where economic and government tyranny reign, and societies where sexual immorality is rampant and normalized. 
All of these things are happening simultaneously in almost every place in the world right now. Between wars and threats of wars, between the mass celebration of sexual perversions as norms and even as good, between the worship of false religions or the idolatry of wealth and politics, self-care and personal satisfaction. There are no shortage of evidence that, that our society is in trouble and shame. Government and corporate corruption or injustice toward the vulnerable is rampant. And so if we are viewing the New Jerusalem in light of Nehemiah as, as the church among society, then we must consider that society is clearly broken. But what about the church among society? Is the church in disrepair? And on the one hand, the mission of the church is always advancing. And that's solely because of the grace and glory and ministry of God through his Holy Spirit that the kingdom of God marches on. But the last few years have been particularly difficult for the church locally and globally. Like So post-pandemic and across cultures, denominations, like across all of these different ideas, empty seats abound in the sanctuaries of God's church. Almost weekly, you can read of a congregation or a denomination or a key influential leader in the church being charged with moral failure or widespread abuse scandals or division due to doctrinal issues, sometimes meaningful and sometimes petty. Denominations and groups of once faithful and orthodox Christian traditions are increasingly allowing the spirit of the age to compel them to abandon the truth of the gospel in the word. So yes, these things are happening within the church. The walls are broken down. In places, it has been burned by fire. So what are we to do? How do we respond to this? Because it's kind of bleak if we think of it simply this way. Well, I think one thing we can do is look at the posture and re response of Nehemiah. And I think we can learn from him. Verse 4 of chapter 1 says, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So Nehemiah responds to the news of his homeland being in trouble with three major things. He mourns, he fasts, and he prays. He mourns, he fasts, and he, he prays. He hears that there's trouble and that there's shame, that there's destruction. And so what does he do? He weeps. He weeps. Brothers and sisters, when you hear about the brokenness in your society, do you weep? What about when you hear about the brokenness within the church? Do you weep when you hear those things? Does it make you weep when you consider the poor in our midst? When you consider the false hope of ungodly worldviews that are being proclaimed from the rooftops, does that make you weep? Does war make you weep? Does brokenness unsettle you and lead you to set aside time, as Nehemiah did, simply to weep and fast and pray? 
It doesn't me. Not usually. Usually I have grown callous to it. I'm cynical about it. I often lack hope of a, a real restoration, and, and, and so I don't stop to weep. I don't stop to fast. I don't stop to pray because it just seems like this is par for the course. Why, why should I concern myself with it? I suspect that's true for many of you. But, but here's what Nehemiah does when he's spending time mourning and fasting and praying. He says this. He says, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to the, hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that, that you commanded your servant Moses, saying that if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. So Nehemiah calls out to God. And in his call out to God, it's clear that he knows who God is. Like, he knows the Lord. He knows the Word. He has a intimate relationship with the God of the Bible. He's the great and awesome God of heaven, Nehemiah says. He's the God who keeps promises and who loves his people with steadfast and abounding love. Church, this is your God. He's the God who keeps promises. He's the God who loves his people with steadfast and abounding love. This is the God that we have the invitation to know and to pray to when things are broken. Then Nehemiah moves from recognizing who God is and reminding God, I know who you are, I know your character, and so I'm going to ask you to act in accordance with your character. Then he repents. He repents for the sins of the people of God, both his own and his brother's sins. He repents for the sins of those who came before him. He repents for his father's sins and the sins of his father's house. He takes note of their corruption and he begs God for mercy. Hear this. Nehemiah repents on behalf of people who are not Nehemiah. He takes ownership for the sins of his brothers and his fathers. This is biblical godly repentance. He doesn't say, I know that they did that, but I didn't do that, God. That, that's not my problem, God. That's something that the generations before me did, Lord. I don't have to take ownership of that. That's something that my brothers in another denomination did, Lord. I don't have to take ownership of that. No, he says, I know about our corruption. I know we haven't obeyed. I know we need to return to you. And so will you be merciful to us? There's been a lot over the last number of years that's happened in the church more broadly that I personally have shrugged off, and if I'm honest, I've thought this. 
thank God that I'm not like that or part of that group. Which, if you read the Gospels and you know the story of the, the Pharisee and the tax collector, that's particularly condemning. Um, but, but most recently, I'm sure you're familiar with this, the Southern Baptist Convention has been in the news for a massive issue of abuse within their churches. Abuse, abusers being harbored, a lack of reporting, a, a corruption, just kind of throughout the denomination, cover-ups, no accountability. And my first thought when that hit the news was, I'm really glad Sojourn Montrose isn't part of the SBC. I'm glad I don't have to answer for that. Shame on me. Shame on me. Those are men and women and congregations who bear the name of the risen Christ. Whether we want them to be in the moment or not, that's the new Jerusalem. Its walls are broken. We should weep and mourn and pray. We should pray for their health and their holiness because it's important because they're the new Jerusalem. And so I should be repenting on their behalf and like Nehemiah, I should ask that the SBC would be marked by faithful ones who do his work because guess what? There are faithful ones who do his work among the SBC and we should be praying for them to be courageous and godly and humble in a time like this, to not lose hope in a time like this. If we're to rebuild the walls of the church, which mark us as a people set apart, consecrated to the Lord in everlasting hope and joy and righteousness, repentance has to be ever-present on our tongue and in our hearts. And that's not only relevant in relationship to large-scale issues in the church that most of us, if we're honest, have no control over other than prayer. It begins in our own hearts. It begins in our own hearts. Like, like the tax collector, we should stand before the kingdom of God beating our chest and saying, have mercy on me, O God, a sinner. We as individual men and women have to actively pursue obedience and assess ourselves in relationship to God's word and his commandments and repent daily hourly, at times moment to moment, because if our neighbors and our city are to be built up and benefit from our presence, then we have to be holy and we have to be distinct and we have to maintain strong walls rooted in the word of God. As we continue, Nehemiah prays and he reminds God of his own promise. He says, God, you commanded Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. Like, this is the story of the Bible, is that God has chosen to make his name dwell among his people. This sets the tone of the book for us. Nehemiah is hopeful that God will use the faithful remnant of Israel to be participants in the fulfillment of all of God's promises that God will build up his holy city and dwell with them there, and that they will be a blessing to the nations. But Nehemiah knows that a healthy Jerusalem 
is the beginning of the nation of Israel blessing the nations. If Jerusalem isn't healthy, if its walls aren't built up, Israel will never be able to bless the nations. It must be built up, made pure, made strong, if the nations will reap the fruits of it. The hearts of the people of Jerusalem will have to be turned toward God in order for it to bless the nations. Nehemiah aims to do that work. He ends his prayer in a really interesting way. He, knowing that in order to do the work that he wants to do, to build up his city, his people, to be devoted to the Lord, that he's going to need to find favor in the king's eyes. And so he says this, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant." and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, referring to King Darius. And he says, now I was a cupbearer to the king. So church, this is the same for us. If, If we want a healthy church, we also need to know that if we want to bless the nations, if we want the promises of God to come to pass where our neighbors are turning to the Lord, are finding home in in the heavenly things, are finding comfort in the promises of God, then a healthy church, both locally and globally, is the beginning of that.